I think the thing that makes me feel the most sort of heartened and, and encouraged is, you know, when we get an email or a Facebook comment or, or whatever from someone who's like, you know, I didn't, I, somebody told me to listen to this thing about bison. I'm like, I don't care about bison. And then I started to care about bison. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Yay. <laughs> This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, I got the chance to catch up with Amy Martin, the award-winning host and creator of The Threshold Podcast. Threshold is just an amazing piece of journalism and storytelling. I encourage you to check it out, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff that I ask you to do for this podcast. Do it for Threshold because that show is so powerful, so awesome, so important, and so beautifully done. I talk with Amy about how she created this project and her vision for it going forward. And we go deep into their current uh, season, season two. She and her team have done some incredible reporting from the Arctic. I think they covered eight countries all over the place, some deep storytelling. And Amy's been an important member of this community for a long time. We talk about her history here, her history as a journalist, and the sensibility she brings to her work. Super fun conversation, and I will turn it over to Amy Martin. All right, so we're here today with Amy Martin. Amy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I think I have now in the studio the most prominent podcaster in the state of Montana. Can oh, we say that? I, I certainly wouldn't say that. It's certainly a joy <laughs> for me. I mean, I'm just sort of trying to get this thing off the ground, and it's a great honor to have you here. Oh, and uh, thank you. Just a huge fan of Threshold. Uh, season one blew my mind. Um, I had just done kind of a deep exploration of Yellowstone and that region where you did a lot of your reporting, and then it was just fascinating. And now season three has me captivated or season two sorry episode three is coming out tomorrow <laughs> as we record this so I'm, I'm pretty anxious to hear that um so yeah so thanks for coming in thank you i'm i appreciate appreciate you listening i'm glad you like it yeah so really interested in how that project came to be but maybe just by way of bio wanting to know a little bit more about what brought you to missoula and how you've chosen to build a career around storytelling uh, on environmental issues Gosh, what brought me to Missoula? Um, I was kind of wandering around. I was sort of in like that mid-20s, you know, finding yourself thing. Sure. But I was very resistant to calling it that. <laughs> what were you calling it? Uh <laughs> I wasn't calling it anything. I was belligerently like, it's not finding myself. I am just, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had been living in Chicago and, um, yeah. Yeah, where's home? Like, where did you grow up? Where I grew up childhood? on a farm in Iowa. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and so I was I was still in the Midwest. At the, I had gone to Midwestern College. I lived in Peru for most of a year after college and then went back and worked and lived in Chicago and Somewhere in there, I just, like, everything started to feel really, really um, set, 
Okay. Like I was like 24, 25, and I suddenly, I was, you know, in a relationship, a great relationship, and I was like, I felt like I could just see my life, like, I'm going to live here, I'm going to move to the suburbs, I'm going to die, like, I can't do this, I have to, I have to get out. Yeah, yeah, it was all sort of, the path was laid out, and it, it wasn't necessarily, what was it, was it the path itself, or just the fact that it was laid out that was dismaying? It was the fact that it was laid yeah, out. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really have any problem with the content exactly, although I just, I wasn't really sure, but it just felt somehow... You know, I'd, I'd grown up in the Midwest, yeah. and even though it's a huge leap from from Preston, Iowa, to Chicago, Illinois, I still just had that feeling of like it's all. I, it, this is it's just all too close. And I had uh, my family had taken some vacations out west when I was little, and fa- I had fallen in love with the mountains. And um, my grandmother had passed away a few years earlier, and she I, I got her uh, powder blue Cutlass Sierra Oldsmobile car. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. And so I. I just, um, I, my boyfriend and I broke up and I just took off and floated around the West for a while. I was like, I mean, I don't know how much detail we should get into all yeah. that, but <laughs> there was some. We have editorial control here, so whatever you want to share, you know, we're, we're, we're a safe environment. There was some sleeping in cars, quite a bit of that, sure. and, you know, staying in communes and uh finding yourself yes crashing with my sister for quite a while in san francisco and and eventually this is all to try to answer how i ended up in missoula so eventually i landed in missoula um and uh i just really within 24 hours i was like oh oh now this is what home feels like it was crazy i just i just felt I mean, I really, it sounds cheesy, but it really was like an experience of, of like when you meet a person that you're just like, I want to be with you, you yeah, know? Yeah. That's how it felt. Nice. So I stayed. This is the place. This is the place. And so, so when was that? Let's get, just get the, the chronology right. That was August of 1999. Okay. Um, and then I went back to the Midwest and picked up some stuff and was back and moved in in October. And so at what point are you in, in this pathway starting to uh, explore journalism and storytelling as, as something you want to be doing? Well, there's a lot of kind of crazy twists and turns in that part of the story. So I had been doing radio all through college. Yeah. Um, I, did, I got a job at the NPR affiliate at my college, and I absolutely loved it. I had great mentors there, and they basically were like, we don't need a student reporter, we need a reporter. So they kind of just trained me. Here you go. Yeah, and it was in a place called the Quad Cities, so there are four local governments, and so they had a ton of like city council meetings and mayoral announcements and things Mm -hmm. to cover. So I was always out running around like as a 19, 20-year-old, like doing political reporting. It was really awesome. Learning the craft of reporting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so really what would have made sense is after college if I had just like gone into journalism but I didn't. Um, I, I, like I said, I spent some time in South America. I came back and was doing like freelance writing in Chicago. Um, and then I had this whole break. And when I landed in Missoula, it was kind of, it kind of coincided with this realization that I really wanted to pursue music. So I had done a lot of music all my life. Um, but that kind of, when I hit Montana, I spent, I don't know what it was over a decade, 15 years, maybe, um, doing music in different forms. I, I had my own, um, you know, little, I, I released albums and toured and stuff and uh-huh. had various groups of people I played with. And then I also led some community music groups for yeah, a while. Yeah, so like lots of music with children too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It looked like amazing work. Well, it was really, really fun. It was, it was really, it was really fun. But somewhere in there, I just kind of started feeling the call of like, I want, I want, I mean, I, I, I think that the storytelling urge that happens in songwriting was, a little bit feeding that part of me that had always done that, but um, 
I really wanted to get in deeper and do more, and I wanted it to be less autobiographical. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I kind of made this return to journalism, and it was funny because people in Montana were like, oh, my gosh, she's leaving music to do this whole other thing. But I'm like, no, actually, music was sort of the detour from this Yeah, other. coming home again in yeah, a way that exactly. they hadn't sort of seen that previous home. Exactly. Interesting. So what did that first look like? What was your first foray back into back into journalism? Um, I started pitching some stories to Montana Public Radio and also to National Public Radio. Uh-huh. And at the same time, um, I decided I wanted to start a podcast that was going to be about the intersection of children, nature, and culture. Yeah. Um, and that was called Learning Their Place. And I was um, I put a whole bunch of work into it for about a year. I made some episodes and then I was like, at the same time that I was doing that, I had been pitching news stories and I just kind of realized that my conception of it was sort of wrong that, um, I actually, excuse me, I still want to do that, but now it feels like what that wants to be is a season of a show like Threshold. Okay. Um, I was like, this is, this is a great idea. This is a great show, but it's not something I want to do for the rest of my life. It's sort of like at a time limited. Right. Um, I want to dig in deep to this for a while and then I want to dig in deep with other things too. So I put that aside and, and started Threshold and I hope to actually come back to that and even use some of the reporting I did for that on a future season of Threshold. But, um, Yeah. Yeah, so let's get right into Threshold. I mean, season one, tremendous success, a deep dive into, you know, the story of the Ameri- the bison in the American West. I don't know if that that's probably the way you describe it, but... Um, yeah, some of the story of the American bison in general, but yeah. Yeah, such a, such a complex story, and one that I don't think people really understand the complexity of. I mean, that's probably what makes it attractive as a journalist. So yeah, maybe talk about that. I mean, I think you have a commitment to environmental storytelling, but... You know, talk about that commitment, but then why studying the bison and the story around the, these animals is the way, to, and the people around those animals is the best way to investigate that. I, you know, I think the the interest in environment just in a way just comes from growing up on a farm and being always kind of connected with the natural world and sure. um, and just interested in it. And I feel like um, to me, the the some of the things that are going on environmentally, I mean, they're not only important and things we all like should be paying attention to, but they're just fascinating. Like, there's fascinating stories about how we relate to to everything that's not us on the planet, and um, and I feel like that that's a vein of storytelling that's kind of going untapped, especially in the podcasting world, mm-hmm. um, and especially to be to be doing it. I think there's a lot of environmental writing um, and, and even some reporting, unfortunately, that feels a lot more like advocacy. Yeah. And yeah. Um, advocacy has its place. It's a great thing. But I'm actually, um, I, I don't like hearing the first few sentences of a story and knowing exactly where, how I'm supposed to think and where yeah, it's going to exactly. end, you know? Even if I agree with the person, it's just it just isn't compelling. Um, so I really wanted to do something where it was is deeper and more nuanced. That's what I'm aiming for. I'm not saying I always get there, but that's what I'm aiming for. And I also feel like maybe because I came from a rural background, um, I'm very interested in getting um, voices of people, you know, that are directly dealing with environmental issues. Not that, I mean, environmental issues don't only happen in the country, but there's a way that um, I feel like so often when we talk about things, there's this kind of urban-rural divide, mm-hmm. and a lot of the reporters are from the urban areas. And um, it's, it's I think people, some people from rural parts of the country, you know, rightly feel a little bit um, overlooked in that. And um, 
I just really believe in the power of dialogue and the power of listening. And I think that that's the most important thing we can do to try to, um, you know, have a civil society is to well, listen to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes through crystal clear in, in threshold. I mean, the, the, so much of the content are really meaningful conversations that you're having with various constituents that are deeply impacted by the issues you're studying. So let's talk about that. I mean, let's talk about why bison as, as sort of uh, the topic area to launch this first season, and then we'll get into kind of the details of how you explored it. Yeah. Well, why bison? I, I think it's sort of like a combination of the fact that it's it's very important, and it's also something that I could report on with the um, almost non-budget that I had, you know? <laughs> yeah, we'll dig into <laughs> because that, too. It's, because it's in our backyard, more or less. Um, uh, you know, I was interested in the bison issue when I first came to Montana at the end of 99. I got, I, I was when I first found out about it, and I thought it was really interesting. And then, honestly, um, over the years, I kind of had, like, bison fatigue, because every year there'd be a story about, we're going to kill more bison in Yellowstone. Yep. Here are the voices you can expect to protest it. Here are the voices you can expect to defend it. And it just felt like we are never going deeper, mm-hmm. never really learning, you know, why this is the way it is. Um, so it just kind of came a little bit out of a frustration with that and my own, you know, personal interest in like, what is the deal with these animals? Right, and, right. And I mean, then, I sort of stumbled into a similar issue when I first moved here. I mean, I grew up out east and uh, lived on the West Coast for a while. But when I, when I came to Missoula, I, I sort of stumbled into the wolf issue. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea. Like, I, mean, I sort of heard about reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone and on a very surface level. And then I stumbled into some conversations with students. I came from ranching families, and then there was other students who were environmental a- advocates. And, I mean, it was, it was sort of like talking about religion, nutrition, and politics all at once. Yeah, absolutely. And I assume bison has some similar dynamics there, that the wide array of, of, of people with different perspectives is pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is. And I felt like one of the things that was so fascinating about reporting it was how quickly it connects to this, to to our history. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the whole American story is kind of encapsulated in this animal mm-hmm. um, and our, our ambivalent relationship with wildness. Um, you know, this um, I, I, like one little moment that I, I just... I remember kind of sitting in my studio, like learning this and kind of like, what? Just that the song Home on the Range, which is memorializing the death of the bison and the death of Native Americans, Mm -hmm. was happening while, you know, before either of, you know, while the genocide of Native Americans was taking place and while the slaughter, the mass slaughter of this animal was in full swing. And, And I just felt like that, that's the thing. Like we're both like, Oh, we love this. We love these kind of romantic ideas um, of this of the of the native other and of the wild animal, and we kind of put them in the same category. And we're simultaneously gonna yeah. not really think about the fact that you know, if if that wanted to be stopped, it could have been right then. Right, and right. I think that that just kind of gets to this really complex thing where it's it's not we can't simply say like there's bison haters and bison lovers. It's like a lot of the times that's the same emotion wrapped up in the same person or the same culture. And how do you tease all that apart? And and that that's what I mean by I think that these environmental stories are just fascinating stories. Like there's archetypal human stuff in all of this that goes, you know, uh, it, it goes way beyond just this animal. And you did that by getting into these conversations, 
right? And probably using some of your journalistic background and you know, your ability to, to talk to people, to, to open them up into sharing their ideas. What, you know, tell me about that, going out on ranches and reservations and you know, community meetings and, and all these places you found yourself to get to the story. Oh, it was just it was just fascinating, and I just feel grateful to everybody who trusted me enough to talk yeah. to me. You know, um, I mean, how do you win that trust? Like, what's <laughs> it like knocking on that door or calling that that phone or whatever? <laughs> um, you know, I don't know how. I don't know quite how to answer that. I mean, I I guess I feel like I don't want to take too much credit. I feel like most of the credit goes to the person who decided, the people who decided to trust me. You know? Sure. Um, I guess I. I do really think if you just show up and are real with people, you know, I, I, I think people can feel like where you're coming from. And, uh -huh. um, and I think people also, you know, a lot of people want to get their story out. They want to be heard. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I mean, there were some people, I guess I, I can think of that I could sense, um, you know, were viewing me with a lot of suspicion, um, but I feel like that they were definitely in the minority. And um, I, think, I think that, you know, one thing that feels really important with people is just to be straight up with them and, and just say, you know, like, I'm, this is what I'm trying to do. Here's why I'm trying to do it. Yeah. You know, obviously, you don't have to participate. But if you wanted to, your voice is important. I mean, that was the main thing I was trying to say to everyone, whether it was a a, a rancher who is completely opposed to a bison or the head of the Montana, you know, stock growers association or governor Bullock or, um, you know, native American communities or bison advocates just to be like every single one of these voices is crucial to telling the story. So if you're not willing to talk to me, then we're, there's just going to be this hole. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and I, hopefully that was somewhat motivating. I don't know. Well, and I think there's, there's, um, there's really an authenticity that comes forth when when you say I want to understand your perspective. Yeah. You know, it's you're you're not saying I want to argue with your perspective. I want to, you know, debate it. I just want to understand and yeah. that can be disarming. And I, I hope. and I seriously did want to understand. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, it's a genuine part of the story <laughs> you were trying to put together. Yeah, and sometimes people after we talk for a while would say, "Well, what do you think?" Yeah, and exactly. do you, you know, and I just it it just not of course I have a mind. I'm capable of having an opinion, but I just kept saying like it's not important. It's it's and I I meant that tr sincerely. It wasn't a dodge. I just feel like for this story, it is not important what I think. It's important what you think and how that bounces off what other people think and what the listener thinks. And mm -hmm. my opinion is essentially not that interesting to anybody except for like me and my mom, maybe. So, A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Chris Shook, Dean of the College of Business at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, as, as, the, as you go through the season, I mean, you start to, the, you take the listener with you on your journey. So we start to, you know, maybe try to find clues of your opinion. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's, that's a natural instinct for a listener. And, you know, maybe you're tipping your hat at different times. I think probably mm -hmm. some of that, like, if if the subject turns to you and says, what do you think? There's an aspect of building trust in that relationship to share your ideas, too. Mm -hmm. That has to come through at some point. Yeah, it does. But I also feel like it can shut people down. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I I haven't actually listened to it since it went out. So to, um, I think I'd you know I maybe I'll do that when I'm like. Well, nine. maybe that yeah yeah that kind of gets me into a question of process because. I mean, this little thing that we do, we sit here with these two mics and, and, and roll, and it's pretty straightforward. But an endeavor like Threshold, I mean, one, it's deeply reported. And two, you must, I mean, I'd love to just sort of explore your method, collecting all of this reporting and then putting it together into a broader narrative across multiple episodes. I mean, what does that process even look like? Um like a giant mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when I first reached out to you this summer or spring about coming on the show, you were like, I am in the editing cave for season two. Talk to me in three, four months. And, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I can't even imagine. It's, it's intense. I will say that it's, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, but it's really hard. Uh, I, I feel one of the things I try to tell our team, and I think that we're all on board with this idea that we're here to discover the, the story. We're not, we're not going to sit in our houses and then go out w and create a story and then go out and find people to drop sound, sound bites into a narrative we've already written, right. you know? And that there's a reason why a lot of reporting happens that way is because you can get things done quickly. Sure. And because there is a lot of reporting that you can do from, you know, sitting at home. But I just feel for the kind of stories we want to tell, it is so important to stay open and just be like, we don't know. And and I feel like case in point, you know, this, this season is about the Arctic. And if you would have asked me, you know, what is the story of the Arctic before I, I took off, I would have said climate change. I, I still think that, but mm -hmm. I what I now also have is all these layers mixed into that. And I feel like, you know, I asked a lot of people that when I was in the Arctic, and that wasn't the answer that they gave all the time, or even necessarily most of the time. Yeah, it's interesting you frame it that way, too, because when I, when I sort of started knowing what season two was about, I thought it was about climate change and using the Arctic as a way to tell the story of climate change. So this, this this turns it completely on its head. Like, the story's about the Arctic, and climate change is one of the themes of the story. Yeah, one of the main themes, but it's not the... Yeah, and I, it's so funny, actually. I, I discovered that I would tell people I'm doing a season about the Arctic, and they would say to me, oh, how did you get interested in climate change? Right. And, um, yeah. and it's not... I mean, it is... A, it, climate change is a major focus of it, of course. I mean, that we're an environmental show. We're in the Arctic. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. Yeah. There is no story you can tell about the Arctic that doesn't involve climate change. But... Um, it is it, it just just what you just said, like flipping, like, well, what is the what is the primary thing we're focusing on? And I feel like that's why it's so important to go into a reporting process with an open mind. And so to get to your to your question about the editing, what that means is you, you come home with mountains. I mean, I so wish much. I could visualize it just like this room full of tape and voices and all these ideas and um I mean, I have all these little notes that I scribble onto pieces of paper and they're stuck all over walls and it's just like grown and grown and grown. And one friend came over in the summer and she hadn't been in my house for a while. And she came and she goes, it looks like a house of a crazy person. Oh, man. <laughs> like, yeah. Thanks. There you go. Like one of those movie scenes, the serial killers, like, put it all together on the board. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Well, I like this to time... think it's more like a beautiful mind, but. There you go. <laughs> And, and this time, different too, perhaps because you know with the, the, with season one, you're reporting somewhat close to home. Season two, you're deep 
on location for I mean what was their travel like were you on location for months at a time and yeah yeah it, all of last summer I was yeah. in the Arctic from May until the till end of September or mid-September and then um, Nick who's a producer on the mm-hmm. show Nick Mott he went to Canada for two or three weeks was it in in the winter okay and then I went and did another month of reporting or month and a half of reporting in the spring so it's been a lot. And then some of the interviews we did uh, from here, too, we talked to some academics and sure. other experts, you know, um, in, in the South, as they call it, anything below the Arctic, people in the Arctic call the South, which I love. Like, you know, Toronto is South. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, just tons and tons and tons of tape. And then, I mean, really one of the most excruciating parts is... I mean, I, I know we've talked over to over 100 people. I haven't even counted, but I bet it's more like 150 or more. And there's probably going to be, what, 20, 30 people in the show? Yeah. So yeah. that just means there's so Tough many choices. brilliant, interesting people that we don't get to share their voices. But um, Although that's one of the wonderful things about podcasts in the sense that you can drop in these bonus features all the time. And you do that. And yeah, I know in, in, in season one, that was often sort of midstream off schedule episodes that were you know longer form interviews or really interesting tidbits that were fun to follow up on. Oh, I'm glad Do you, you plan like that. on continuing that with season two? Yeah, we are going to. We got a little feedback from some people that they found it kind of confusing to have them yeah. drop in in the middle of the episode. So we decided we're gonna release the whole season and then send out extras after the fact this time. But yeah, I'm glad to hear you like them. They're fun to make. I mean a lot of that is I already have like large sections of episodes done that aren't aren't going to actually be episodes and okay. they're not going to be in the show. And so I'm like, I want to share that, you know? So, yeah. I mean, that's the the tricky thing when you, you have great content and you feel like, you know, it doesn't necessarily square within the time frame and you know, the, the narrative that you need to be getting to at that point, but it's still, it's great that you can get it out. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. <laughs> the, the danger is like, you know, that we will have to cut ourselves off at some point because, you know, there's a, there's diminishing returns after a certain point, but I think, you know, this was, we went to eight countries and talked to just so many people. And this is such an important, um, set of issues and questions that I think that we'll, we'll probably indulge ourselves and let our, do quite a few extras sure. this time. So you spent some time with a family in Norway that, that kind of paints the picture of one of these examples of the complexities of the effects of climate change. This family, they're, they're reindeer herders, yet, uh, they live adjacent to a wind farm, and that's having a wind farm that is ironically a supposed solution to a climate change problem. Can you talk about sort of the complexities of the challenges that family's facing? Yeah, the Alex Anderson family, they mm-hmm. were... Um, I, I tried to set that up so you could take the first crack at pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. Um, they were just, they're just a great family, and I'm so, so honored they let me spend quite a bit of time with them. Um yeah, you know, they, they actually have a really interesting story. They're, they're a Sami family. The Sami are the indigenous people of northern okay. Norway and western Russia. Um, and so they herd reindeer, and they, they actually moved over to this spot on the coastal part of Norway specifically because there was a permit available there. You, have to, you can only herd reindeer in certain permitted areas. So they moved there to be able to do that. Um, they've been there, I, I forget, maybe three or four years. So they're, um, I mean, they had been herding elsewhere, but... Um, it's a new spot for them. And only after they had made the move did they realize that there were these potential plans for this giant wind farm. It will be the largest onshore wind farm in Europe. Um, 
so they just kind of had to swallow that, like, oh, how is this going to affect things? And yeah, they probably can't stop it at that point. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't stop it. When they, but the plans that they saw made it feel like, I mean, it looked like it was probably going to be okay, like not ideal, but okay. Well, then what happened is, um, you know, as as things often happen, there's a big difference between what's happening on the ground and what was in the plans. Sure. And so a whole bunch of roads are going in that were not in the plans that are going straight through their reindeer herding mm-hmm. areas. And um, without getting too deep into the weeds, I guess I'll, I'll just say that um, this is a family that the the mom and the family, Riston, you know, she, she has been a major climate change uh, action advocate. She works within the Church of Norway, and that's one of her main issues that she focuses on, in part because reindeer are directly impacted by climate change. Um, as the world, as the, the climate warms, um, they're getting way more rain way sooner in the season instead of snow. Okay. And what that means for the reindeer is uh, reindeer, reindeer and caribou are the same animal, basically. And um, both animals are highly adapted to snow and to cold, but they're not adapted to rain. And they're not adapted because what happens is it'll rain and then there'll be a big layer of ice. And then a bunch of wet, heavy snow will come over that. Okay. And they can't, they can't smell. There's actually lichens and other things they can eat underneath the snow, even in the dead of winter. They can't smell it, and even if they can smell it, they can't they break can't get through to it. ice. Yeah. So huh. um, it's really having an impact on on Sami reindeer herders across Scandinavia. So in part because of that, and in part just because she's an informed and engaged um, citizen, she's really concerned about climate change. Um, so she's a person who would naturally be totally supportive of a wind farm. But in this case, the wind farm is going up, and it's it's basically, it, it, it may put them completely, it may make it impossible for them to keep reindeer herding. And this is something that her children, they're teaching their children, they really, really, the kids want to continue to do it. And um, they they might just be, it might be the end of the line for them. And just to understand the context, this is like a thousands of years old tradition that has been passed on by generation, generation. Right. There's been tons of oppression against the Sami. They've managed to hang on. And the thought that, you know, while they're fighting climate change on one hand and then on the other, that there's this new, you know, major energy and renewable energy development that could also, is also negatively impacting them. It's just so, it's so ironic in a, in a kind of a dark way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're, their approach is not to say, oh, yeah, well, I guess we shouldn't care about climate change and we shouldn't try to do renewable energy, but we need to be thinking about how we're solving our climate change problems. And then we, we need to understand that there are social justice, you know, questions mixed in with all of this. Absolutely. And that um, it's 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 very easy to employ some of the same the same mindset that created this problem in in the process of solving it and what's i mean it's fascinating to me because i got to know them before it was clear that this wind park was even going in so i kind of watched this unfold with them over the year okay but it's also fascinating to me because this is not something that's just unique to them this is something that indigenous people are facing all over the world you know there's huge dams going in in india that are um, wiping out communities there's um you know wind farms and other, um, you know, developments here in the States that are, you know, there's this, this instinct to be like, let's, let's solve our problem by putting it somewhere where we don't, where the mainstream society isn't likely to see it and where yeah, there's a bunch of people it. that don't have that much power, uh, you know, so they don't, they can't really fight it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what Riston and her family are trying to say is like, we want to solve climate change, but you can't solve it by, by, you know, on the backs of indigenous people. And, 
Right, and you can't solve it on the backs of people that are already uh, disproportionately impacted by climate change. Yeah. I mean, I can't help but think about, um, you know, this country and, and kind of our, our dysfunctional relationship to climate science. Um, it seems like there's a growing appetite for, you know, I, I won't call what you do science journalism, but it does tackle issues that intersect with science. There seems to be a growing appetite for that sort of science-informed reporting. Yet at the same time, there is uh, an, an as strong an appetite for re reversion from science. Science is bad, anti-science. Do you think about that at all? And, and, and maybe this form that you, you're, this form of journalism that you're working in is a, is a bridge between, perhaps? I, that's a really nice way to frame it. I hope it is. That maybe. would be great. Yeah. Um, I do. I mean, something's got to change the way we approach these big problems. Yeah. I, I do think about it. I, I am not a scientist, but I've always loved science. Sure. I've, always, I've always been fascinated by it. And I feel like the best scientists can communicate in a way that the rest of us can understand. And also, I feel like the best journalists should be able to help translate, you know, e even, even scientists who don't communicate that well, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, they're, it's not really their job to be great storytellers. They're out supposed to be, you know, collecting data and telling us what's going on about, about these different issues. And, um, I, I think again, it's just, there's fascinating stories to be told. And, um, I, I think science is crucially important and to having a informed society and a, and a functioning democracy right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think people, if you give them if you give them interesting stories around scientific concepts, I think they can get invested in it. And maybe my role in that is kind of to be a proxy for the listener who's like, you know, like I said, I'm not a scientist. Most listeners are not scientists, but I think a lot of listeners are interested. So I can kind of be with them and like, wait a minute, what did you just say? What was that word? And sure. how does this fit together? And break it down for me, you know? And, um, and that works great in the, you know, the audio format too. I, I mean, hope it so. It just takes listeners with you. I hope so. I, 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 I am heartened by how many people really seem to want to learn that kind of stuff. I think, I think that there's actually just a small minority of people who are so anti-science, and they just happen to have a lot of power. Yeah, and it can get tribal, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, people exactly. might just sort of be anti-science because their tribe is supposedly anti-science, and, mm -hmm. and it just sort of is the position you fall into without mm -hmm. really being thoughtful about it. Mm -hmm. But then hearing real stories about real people you know, gives me hope that you know, if you can touch into, if you can sort of tap into the human condition a little bit, um, it's a way to open your mind, certainly. And I, I think the, the way in which you approach your work, telling, getting such a wide array of perspectives on a complicated topic is really meaningful. Well, thanks. It gives it great authenticity. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> well... We'll see. I mean, we're only a couple episodes into yeah, season two, so you I'm going to give like you the it. benefit of the doubt there. <laughs> so, you know, as we kind of try to uh, wind this down, I'm tempted to ask you all these questions about how, how to make a great podcast, but that's a little self-serving. I mean, um, maybe I'll ask you that off the air. But I would like to just give you a chance to talk a little bit about the recognition, the great recognition that Threshold has received. I mean, multiple awards in your first season, and it looks like season two is is... is engendering some more support is it the you know it's it's been supported by missoula i'm sorry montana public radio but now you have the support of the is it the the pulitzer foundation or Pul yeah 
Pulitzer Center on Crisis Centric. Reporting. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So tell me a little bit about like some of the opportunities that's enabled you to you know, take what you did in season one and, and scale it up to quite a bigger production for season two. Yeah, we could not have done. We 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 would not have gone to all eight Arctic countries. Yeah, that's not a cheap Center. endeavor, right? No, no. <laughs> we were already midway through our reporting when we got their support, but we, you know, um, I was like, okay. We might not be able to go to Arctic Canada. We might not be able to go to Russia um, because you know, those are expensive places to go to. Particularly um, where you're going there. Yeah, yeah. But um, but with their support, we were able to go to all eight countries. And they also have set up, um, you know, they're setting up some events and stuff. I just got back from a trip to the University of Missouri where I did a bunch of events with the journalism school there. And um, and there'll be more stuff like that. And, and that's great. Um, we're so grateful for their help and Montana public radio support. That's been absolutely crucial. We also have a partnership with, um, the, the show, the radio show called the world it's on oh, PRI. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to have, well, actually by the time this comes out, there will be, uh, quite a few, uh, pieces that have been aired on them and, yeah, it's great. It's it's nice that you know some people have put us on their best podcast lists and things like that. And um, but I also feel you know um, I think the thing that makes me feel the most sort of heartened and and encouraged is um, you know when we get an email or a Facebook comment or or whatever from someone who's like you know I didn't I somebody told me to listen to this thing about bison I'm like I don't care about bison and then I started to care about bison for sure <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yay. <laughs> and there's got to be things happening on both extremes like the person in Manhattan that's never seen a bison or even really thought more about it than than you know <laughs> bison burgers <laughs> exactly and, and then all of a sudden their person is doing a deep dive into threshold or the person who's like working in Yellowstone managing the bison herd like living in that space all the time so it's and it's got great value to to those two and everything in between it was it was really nice to hear from yellowstone put out on their own like twitter or something they they put some really nice things about threshold out and that that was gratifying because they you know everybody who works in anything bison related hears a whole lot of stuff yes (laughs) so i'm glad they they felt like it was it was at least in depth and fair Mm -hmm. um so yeah. So as you were lining out, <laughs> traveling to eight Arctic countries, you know, so what was your crazy? I got to imagine there's a crazy travel story in there. <laughs> I mean, some crazy combination of vehicles and <laughs> yeah. Oh, there were so many. I mean, one thing that I learned is that um, four wheelers are a huge deal in the Arctic. Okay. I had I, I had some fairly intense four-wheeler rides. I only fell off once um, and I didn't get hurt, but uh, yeah, they were... <laughs> It was like, you know, just driving through incredible rain and mud and just, you know, hanging on with yep. like a giant backpack on somebody's four-wheeler. That, that happened multiple times. Um, Greenland, Greenland is amazing. And sure. I recommend yeah. everybody go there. I mean, the, the, it's, it's the biggest island in the world. It's three-quarter of it's covered by an ice sheet. It, it has a population of like 56,000 people. So there are a few wow. people then that then live in Missoula, live in this entire country. No two towns are connected by any roads. Everything's by boat or by plane or dog sled. And um it's just fascinating and the people were so great. And um I'm trying you know, there were two of my flights in Greenland got uh canceled because of bad weather. Okay. Um I took a helicopter out onto the Greenland ice sheet with um wow. Joel Harper, who's an amazing glaciologist here at the University uh-huh. of Montana. 
Um, I had some crazy boat rides. I spent an entire day in the tiny little fishing boat with a with a Greenlandic fisherman who I who said he spoke English. And then once we got out there, I realized he really barely did. Um, but we had a great day. And I mean, just Greenland alone had like every form of transportation, and and it was it was amazing. Awesome. Well. Amy, I can't thank you enough for coming in and sharing some of the story of Threshold with us. And uh, I encourage listeners to check out this podcast. It is amazing work. It's important work. And um, I really want Amy to keep this up. So listen to season two and subscribe (laughs) in advance to season three and and season four and five and six. And let's keep this thing going. This is sort of the become the serial of, uh, of environmental reporting, perhaps. It's something to aspire to. Well, thank you so much. I promise everybody I did not pay him, but I should have, because that was like the best commercial ever. Thank you so much. There you go. Well, I am a marketing professor, so I'm <laughs> supposed to know something about that. <laughs> thanks for having me on. Thanks for your support of the show, and, and um, thanks for what you're doing, too. It's fun to hang out with another podcaster. Yeah. So just as we close, tell people how they can learn more about your work, where they can find it, follow you on social, et cetera. Where would you like people to go? Um, Thresholdpodcast.org. And you can find the links to everything there. Um, You know, we're we're not on Snapchat, but all the other places, just, just search for us. We'll come up. Okay. Well, there it is. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Amy as much as I did. And again, check out the Threshold podcast. Uh, Check it out on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. It is beautiful work, important journalism, and I encourage you to dig in. All right. Next week, we sit down with Steve Albini, Missoula native, iconoclastic musician, a recording engineer, sound engineer, just a legend in the music business and an awesome guy to talk to. It's a fun conversation. I felt like it took us a while to kind of sync up. We were talking past one another for a while. And yeah, Steve's a pretty fun guy. And I really enjoyed the time we had with him. And I look forward to bringing you that conversation next week. Stay tuned. Remember that a new angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you've been listening long enough to know that these guys are big and that they sell pretty much everything electrical you would ever need. But you might not know that they hire a ton of University of Montana students. If you want to learn more about careers at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Kamzar, Elizabeth Willie, interns, Aspen Runkel, Mason Dow, and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.